This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a live show devoted to subjects that are hard to talk about because they make us feel vulnerable, afraid, or ashamed. Tonight's topic is understanding sexual fantasies. Because this show is about subjects that are hard to talk about, that may also mean that they may be hard to hear about. Tonight's show may be objectionable to some listeners, so parental discretion is advised. My guest tonight is Dr. Michael Bader. He is a psychologist and psychoanalyst in practice in San Francisco. He's the author of numerous articles and two books. The first that we'll be discussing tonight is Arousal, The Secret Logic of Sexual Fantasies. His second book, which we may discuss in the future, is Male Sexuality, Why Women Don't Understand It and Men Don't Either. Dr. Bader has also written uh, numerous articles about the intersection between psychology, politics, and culture. Welcome to Safe Space, Michael. It's really good to be here. I want to ask you, your, your article is entitled, The Secret Logic of Sexual Fantasies. Mm-hmm. And uh, what do you mean by that? What is the, se- the secret logic? Well, I think most people tend to think about their fantasies as... Um, a little bit like most people regard their dreams, which is uh, we have them. They sometimes are accompanied by a lot of feeling, uh, but we don't really think they have much meaning. At least they don't have meaning that the ordinary person can figure out. And over many years of thinking about this, when it came to sexual fantasies, I actually uh, came to a very different point of view, which is, I think we can understand them. I think that they can make sense. uh, And not only that, they can be a window into uh, a lot of kind of who we are and what we wrestle with in life uh, outside the bedroom. So when I say there's a secret logic, I say that in order for people to get aroused, and that's any of us, it has to be safe enough. And that, that doesn't always make sense to people when I first say it, because, well, what does safety have to do with a fantasy? Well, there are a lot of things that make sexuality complicated and difficult for people. We feel guilty about it. We get ashamed of it. We feel worried about each other too much. And Yet we still all have the desire, the healthy desire to feel uh, aroused and feel pleasure. And our minds and our imaginations are our partners in helping us get to the place we want to get to, which is to feel some pleasure and some excitement. And the way they help us is through developing just the right sexual fantasy that helps us um, feel safe enough to get turned on. And it's such an interesting idea because I think we are told or, you know, we think that actually riskiness is what is sexy, that the forbidden is sexy, that the element of danger um, is what turns us on. So how, how did you get to this idea that we actually need to feel safe to be aroused? Well, you know, it's interesting about risk. Um, several people have said to me the same thing. Well, what about somebody who... Um, Oh, says they get aroused when they imagine having sex in a place where they could be discovered, let's say. Yeah. And not a rare 
fantasy and and sometimes depicted in various media, whatever. Well, what I have found in working with folks who have that kind of uh, predilection and that kind of preference is that it's not the danger that turns them on. It's the fact that they survive the danger that turns them on. What they do each time they take a risk is they kind of open themselves up to the possibility of being um, exposed and humiliated, okay? Yeah. Uh, it's not the threat of exposure that's arousing. It's when they survive that and they're not caught that they get turned on because what folks in that situation find over and over again is that if they actually are discovered, they completely lose all sexual excitement, all sexual arousal. It's like a... Right, well, humiliation is, is... Real humiliation is not very exciting. Never. It's never safe and it's never arousing. So that's confusing because some scenarios that we read about or people feel can look like they're all about humiliation. But that's why the logic is a secret logic, because we hide from ourselves the fact that it's not the humiliation that is arousing to us. It's the transcending or the, the kind of negating of the humiliation, the survival from the humiliation that actually turns us on. So, in other words, it may be that the person experience some kind of humiliation or danger in their real life, and they're trying to almost redeem that, that wound. Exactly. They, they replay the scene, so it looks in the beginning like it's the same old thing, the same painful, traumatic situation. That's not arousing. What's arousing is when they finagle it so that they uh, don't have the same outcome. They avoid the humiliation. That's what is essential to the arousal. Uh, so sometimes you say, well, what about the guy that likes to feel pain or likes to have something painful done to him? Right. Well, the pain is not what's arousing, although the guy often doesn't know himself uh, what the key to it is. But what, what I have found is that it's not the pain that's arousing. What's arousing to him is that somebody else is in charge and that something harmful is being done to him and he doesn't have to worry about doing something harmful to somebody else. So in other words, his real fear is that he, he's, he's capable of hurting someone or that his sexuality might be in some way destructive to others. Exactly. And I, I think if, if your listeners think about it, there's lots of ways that we all um, probably inhibit ourselves in some ways for fear of <clears throat> being too much for the other person or inadvertently making them feel rejected or... Uh, putting them down, or in other ways, um, making them feel bad. Uh, and we all have inhibitions like that. But unfortunately, th those inhibitions get in the way of uh, some folks getting really excited. Uh, they shut us down. They shut our libidos down. They make us feel self-conscious. They make us kind of uh, inhibited. And in order to overcome that, we have to figure out some way of letting ourselves be a little aggressive, 
a little uninhibited and kind of let the cat out of the bag without worrying about doing damage to the other. Part of what was so striking to me about reading your book, which is along the lines of what you're saying, is that, you know, and maybe this comes from the perspective of being a woman and thinking, you know, the danger of sex, the thing that that you're trying to find safety from is sort of the literal danger of being raped or being hurt. Yeah. But your book is really turning that on its head and Mm -hmm. suggesting that actually the danger that's most inhibiting for people sexually is the is the feeling of guilt about hurting someone else or mm-hmm. the wor- the worry about hurting someone else or the feeling of guilt of having too much pleasure yeah you, you know I've, i'm thinking of a, <clears throat> a woman that i saw a while ago who uh, i write about in the book who was a feminist um and an intellectual a teacher a professor at a local college and she's quite well known and very strong, uh, uh, sort of well-spoken, articulate woman um, who uh, had been a feminist for many years. And she came to see me because she was finding herself bored in her marriage sexually, except when she could use a fantasy to um, get herself aroused And the fantasy is what bothered her. And she came in because she wanted to understand, why am I having this fantasy? And the fantasy was uh, simply this, that she imagined herself in her office late at night, and a very large, well-endowed janitor comes in and um, sort of takes her by force, puts her on the desk, rips her clothes off, and has his way with her. And doesn't matter about her protests. Um, he doesn't care about her inner life. He doesn't have any empathy for what she feels. And oh, it's a, it's that, a rape fantasy, in other uh, words. It's a rape fantasy, right. And that fantasy gets her extremely excited, and she can then climax with her husband. And she's quite ashamed of it. I because, imagine deep, deeply disturbed by it. Yeah, very yeah. disturbed by it. She's not supposed to have fantasies like that. Right. On any level. Right. right. And yet we find that you know a large percentage of women have fantasies that somewhat revolve around a scenario in which they are being dominated. And they're not women who in their everyday life would ever tolerate anything like that. So how do you understand that? Well, you know, with her, what I found was that she had a deep uh, worry about overwhelming a man. She uh, had grown up in a family where um, she had a father who was uh, uh, very blustering and critical. But uh, as she got older, she realized that he was very uh, easily threatened. He was defensive. He was brittle. And that whenever she wanted to, she could provoke a fight with him and he would fly off the handle and lose control. Now, what she actually ended up feeling about all that wasn't primarily fear. It was this tremendous sense of power and guilt that she could make her father lose control whenever she wanted to. And that he was kind of a weak guy. And she grew up with this, you might say, funny feeling that men could be bullies, but they were also pushovers. And if she didn't edit herself and she wasn't careful, 
and she really kind of gave way to her impulses with total abandon and didn't think about the guy's fragile ego, she would uh, completely overwhelm him. And that really is a not uncommon conflict and worry that many women have. So for her, in her marriage with this really nice guy, she shut herself down because she thought, he's so nice, I can't get turned on by him because I can't let go because he's too weak. Right. So in her fantasy life, she uh, creates this scenario where the guy is so big, so selfish, so insensitive, and so invulnerable that she doesn't have to worry and she can completely let go in that situation because she doesn't have to feel even a nanosecond of responsibility for this big behemoth, this bully. And there is an ingredient of that meaning in most of the domination fantasies that I think women have. It's so counterintuitive because what you're basically saying is she needs to imagine this rape scenario in order to feel safe. Exactly. I mean, that takes a stretch yep. to get there. Right. But you're really and talking about a level of safety that's very different. You're not talking about physical safety. You're talking about emotional or psychological safety. Well, that, that, that's exactly right because if any element of that fantasy came true, she would be totally horrified, completely traumatized, That's absolutely right. have no sexual excitement, and either, you know, pull out a gun or run for the hills. Right, so you're talking about a very important distinction here between fantasy and real life. Huge. And, and it's probably really important to make sure that, I mean, it's so delicate to be even talking about this because it can sound as if... You know, it's almost like condoning sexual yeah. violence. It's, it feels incredibly... We have to be so careful even about how we talk about this. And, and that's why I think a lot of women um, who have fantasies of kind of being overpowered that are very arousing to them might at times not talk about them that freely. Indeed. Or, or I would suggest not allow themselves to have that fantasy that it's so disturbing mm -hmm. and so against their politics mm -hmm. that you censor it. It's a great deal of censoring, although the, the thing that's so interesting in sexual fantasies is that these things arise almost um, against our will, you know, not literally, but they arise <clears throat> whether we want them to or not. And the thing that's interesting is, let's say a woman has, one woman has a fantasy that's very elaborate, like my, my patience was, Another woman will say, no, I don't have fantasies like that. Okay. And then I might ask her, well, what kind of men are you drawn to? And she said, well, big men. Well, okay, what's your sort of private erotic fantasy that maybe you might use to arouse yourself when you're alone? Well, it might be a, a, a big guy who I don't know that well. Okay. Right, so we get closer and closer to the same script, in other words. Exactly, and she's not labeling it a fantasy, but it's the thing that is very, it's actually the same thing as a fantasy. It's just not a story she's telling herself. Right, so that's another important, I think, point that you write about and you speak about, is that we tend to think about sexual fantasies as something very kind of exotic and out there and maybe even extreme, but really you're saying this is something normal, that all of our minds, you know, go to some place, we use our imagination to assist ourselves. And the imagination is such an incredible thing that we have, right? And 
So when we start to confuse the difference between imagination and reality, then we get in trouble. But most of us know the difference. And so having an active imagination doesn't mean you sit around and imagine these elaborate scenarios uh, in your head, but they mean that, you know, there are certain narratives that you're drawn to. There are certain stories turn you on. Some some uh, women might say, uh, geez, I really love the James Dean character, motorcycle, lost boy, hoodlum, rough. Uh, somebody else might, ah, I can't stand men like that. I'd like a man who's more sensitive with this body type, this position in bed. All those preferences that we think are just kind of natural or instinctual, What's so interesting is they all have a meaning. And the thing that I have found so useful is if we understand the meaning, uh, you not only can get a sense of what's going on in the bedroom, but you can get a sense of kind of what's making the person tick and where the person might even get in some trouble sometimes. In other words, it's helpful in the, in the larger therapeutic work for the rest of their lives. I, I found it to be. It's so interesting to me because, you know, Freud it was talked about the dreams of the royal road to the unconscious. And it, I think about, for you, sexual fantasies is sort of the royal road to what really matters in therapy. Oh, because they're so much easier to decode, you know. With, <laughs> with a dream, you know, somebody's upside down and floating somewhere between Venus and Mars and their mother's on their shoulder, but it's a stork <laughs> underneath. And you have to interpret all those images. But with sexual fantasy, it's often very transparent. Well, maybe to you. Certainly the way you're talking about it is, yeah. is not necessarily intuitive at first. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne. This is Safe Space, and I'm talking to Dr. Michael Bader about sexual fantasies and, and really what I think is a radical new way of understanding them. This show is part of a series on male sexuality, so I want to shift now to mm-hmm. talking about what would be you know, an example of a fantasy that a man might have that also might have a meaning very different than what that might be disturbing to him, say, that he might not want to share, that might make him uncomfortable, mm-hmm. while at the same time making him very aroused. Well, I think one of the most common uh, fantasies that, sexual fantasies that men have that make them uncomfortable is the same as <clears throat> what I just described for women. That is that a man who enjoys uh, a fantasy of surrender, of some kind of submission, or being... Um, being uh, done to, being dominated, um, being tied up, being uh, sort of overpowered by uh, a woman. Um, There was uh, a book Nancy Friday wrote years ago that collected men's fantasies. And she's known for collecting women's fantasies. She did one called Men in Love where she collected men's fantasies. And she said the most common uh, sexual fantasy that, that men in her study had uh, was to be done to in some way, to be done to, because men also have this, <coughs> excuse me, this tremendous sense of responsibility for taking care of women and often grow up with that same attitude about their moms and they grow up feeling that they're not only breadwinners, but they're supposed to um, uh, be stoic and strong and protective uh, in work lives. Um, they often feel, you know, they're managing lots of people and things. And it gives rise in many of them, see, if they take that attitude um, in bed, it becomes very hard to get aroused because feeling too responsible 
for the welfare of the other person, while it's great in a relationship out of the bedroom, can really get in the way of a relationship in the bedroom. Because you have to be able to care about the other person, connect with them, but also you have to be able to give up responsibility and not worry about the other person's welfare so, so much. And one way to guarantee it is to have a situation where the woman appears very strong and dominant because then the man doesn't have to take responsibility for anything. It's all for him or to him. And for many men, that's very exciting, but it violates the male code. Absolutely. And they're supposed to be strong and in charge. And instead, they're thinking, geez, you know, I like to be tied up or I like to be held down or I like, you know, the woman to do this or that to me. And it's one reason why many men are also drawn to images of women who are strong and symbolically in their minds who look tough. So there's an image of, you know, a woman who's stiletto heels and lots of sharp edges and curves and a kind of, oh, somewhat tough, even a little haughty look. And for many men, that's exciting because it signals to them unconsciously, this woman is strong and I don't have to take care of her. Now, that may not be right in reality, but it's the way fantasy works. So there's a sense of relief. I don't have to be the provider in every sphere. Exactly. And then I can just sort of open the, open the can there. You know, I can just let it go. And I don't have to be micromanaging or hyper alert or attuned to whether or not she's happy. So then if we take that, we just work with this, and mm-hmm. we, how much does, does what happens in the bedroom have to be a little bit similar to the fantasy mm-hmm. in order for the person to be maximal, have the most pleasure? Well, it's a really good question, and, and it, it, it's a hard thing to, to answer because I think it, it depends on the person how much of uh, substitutes, how much compromise can be had. I think for most people, if this is a generalization, I'm not sure I'd stick to it, but let's, I'll, I'll say as a generalization, most people are pretty flexible. Like they have a range of, they have a repertoire that's pretty big and they can accommodate a lot of different, you know, compromises and meeting points between them and their partner. Um, but no one is infinitely flexible and most of us have kind of default modes that we go to um, And so it's always a project of figuring out with the other person, often in an unspoken way, where the meeting points are between my fantasy and yours. And often, like I say, there is a way that those can be made to fit. But two things I'd say about it. One is, it often doesn't last which gets to the subject of why, you know, sexual excitement declines over time. What, what doesn't last? The fantasy doesn't last or the, or the compromise that's arrived at? The match, yeah, uh-huh. the particular match uh, yeah. doesn't remain as vibrant and alive. Yeah, as you can, it is you can overuse it. Yes. And secondly, that there are some folks where um, they really require for their own reasons that the other person be much closer to their, you know, kind of ideal And those are either relationships that also can founder because 
let's say a, a guy needs to have the woman be dominant, but he's willing to play around with alternatives, but really that's what he wants. And she's kind of intrigued by it in the beginning and plays with it and enjoys it some. But it turns out she's finding that he wants that more and more. And in fact, he's not interested in sex outside of that role-playing. Well, now there's a problem, because that's not necessarily her favorite thing. And then they have to have some negotiation or exploration of this, because otherwise things sort of under the covers, they really go south. And my sense from you is that if someone works with the meaning of their fantasy then and understands maybe what its roots are in their own real life, their childhood or so on, that actually can expand their flexibility with it, that It fantasy. very much can. I, I don't think anyone ever radically changes their core uh, preferences, but you can expand your repertoire, your flexibility. You can experiment with other kind of um, role relationships and things and find sometimes surprising pleasures that you would never allow yourself to find if you're sort of stereotyping yourself into a certain routine. So I actually want to change the subject now because yeah. I know we have so little time and every, what you're saying is so interesting to me. I, you write about the concept of ruthlessness. Mm -hmm. And I want to ask you what you mean by that and how that plays into sexual fantasies. One of the most common complaints I get from couples that come into my office and complain about a bad sex life is at some point, one or the other will say something like, geez, I wish he'd quit worrying so much and just throw me on the bed and have his way with me. Or I wish she would just grab me and do me and not have to go through a long song and dance. Now, underneath that, I have found over and over again that... Um, what the problem is that each person is too aware and tuned into the interior states of the other. Now, for good reasons. They often love them, and they care about who they are and how they feel. They want them to be happy. But if you are so driven to focus on the other person's happiness quotient, um, what can happen is you lose a connection to your own and you can't surrender to your own mounting excitement and interior uh, pleasure because you're watchful to an extreme when it comes to your partner. So I say that ruthlessness is a healthy dimension to sexual excitement. To maximum sexual excitement requires that I'd be able to kind of momentarily turn my back on you a little bit, figuratively speaking, um, and surrender to what I'm feeling rather than micromanaging your feelings like I might tend to do in my ordinary everyday life, you know. And in that case, you could say that I'd suffer from an absence of ruthlessness or a conflict about being ruthless, which I take to mean being able to be sexually selfish, Right, and it, it is so striking because, of course, I think, at least among women, there's such a feeling like men need to be more present or more tuned or more emotionally connected. But what you're saying is actually men feel so pressured and socialized to be the provider, to be responsible, to tune in to their partner, that, in fact, it may be that if they could be a little more ruthless, that the sex would be better for both of them. Well, this is a great point because here's the 
the $64,000 question is this. If the man is so worried about hurting the woman and so concerned about her interior life and being enough for her and making her happy, in order to get aroused, what he sometimes does is he shuts down. He puts up a wall. He becomes almost like a thing or treats her like a thing. And she experiences it as he's not emotional. But really what she's seeing is she's seeing his defense, his attempt to deal with the problem of how do I have excitement with this woman uh, and not get so sucked into her emotional life that I lose my sense of ruthlessness and separateness and selfishness. Well, all right, I'll figure out how I'll do it. I'll just shut down completely. So the wall, in fact, is actually a byproduct of his, of his being too attuned to her. It's exactly right. And women will laugh at me when I say this, but I say I can guarantee you if he were less guilty and more relaxed about being more selfish... He'd be more present. He'd be more present. We have to end. That is such a provocative and interesting note. If people want to find out more about your work and your ideas, how can they find you on the web? He can, they can find me by uh, going to www.michaelbader.com. One word, michaelbader.com. This has been such a pleasure and such a provocative discussion. Thank my you so pleasure. much for being my guest. This is Safe Space, Dr. Ann on WMPG. We've been talking about understanding sexual fantasies. I've been talking to Dr. Michael Bader, author of Arousal, The Secret Logical Sexual Fantasies who can be found on the web. Next week, I will be talking about pornography uh, as a continuing part of our series on male sexuality. Coming up next is Money Talks with Allison.